Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Kate Bailey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Chris Justin, Relationship Manager at Seven Investment Management. When markets go up, investors are usually pleased. But if they rise very fast and get very expensive, that could be a reason to avoid them or even trim exposure. A recent example is US equity markets, which have reached levels not seen since the technology bubble at the turn of the millennium, and we all know how that ended. Kate, what's been driving US equity markets so high, and are they set to crash like at the turn of the millennium? Um, well, uh, technology stocks are basically the reason for this massive rise. So we've had um, stocks like Facebook, Apple, Netflix, the Fangs, as, as we know them, um, perform really, really strongly and push up benchmarks like the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones um, and the S&P to, to pretty peaky highs. Um, I mean, some of that has been on the back of quite a solid earnings season in the US for some of these tech giants, um, with most of those companies beating analysts' estimates and Facebook in particular. Um, But clearly, this is kind of reaching quite frothy territory. And there is a bit of a worry that that we are going to get a bit of a pullback. And in fact, today, we have seen those tech shares um, come back slightly and, and bring the indices down. Okay, does that mean investors should avoid investing in US equities? Well, no, um, it's not a reason to avoid the U.S. altogether, and there's several reasons why. Um, Firstly, the U.S. is a massive part um, of the global index or global stocks. It's almost 60% of the MSCI World Index is is U.S. stocks, so you really can't afford to ignore that in your own portfolio. Um, We also don't know how far this rally might have to run. There could be, you know, further returns to get from the U.S. when you don't want to miss out. Um, Also, the U.S. market is massive, so it's about more than just a few uh, technology names. It's more than just the fangs, so you shouldn't shun it for for that reason alone. And we have talked before in this podcast about the fact that, you know, you shouldn't ignore markets just because they're expensive, that there is often or usually a way to get in and to kind of protect yourself um, from from crashes. Okay, so what would be a good way to get into them and protect yourself from crashes and okay well there's there's a few different ways of getting um u.s exposure so in fact the the funds the active funds that have done the best at beating the benchmark which is is no mean feat as in fact there aren't that many of them um those managers have been invested in these kind of large cap um technology or large cap growthy stocks and the higher quality consumer staple stocks so those are the the ones that are the most expensive Um, But obviously, if you're going with a good active manager, you hope that they will kind of sort the wheat from the chaff and um, and find good, uh, expensive stocks which are worth buying. Um, So an example of that might be Bailey Gifford American. So that fund's returned 256.3% over 10 years, which is well ahead of the S&P 500 index. Um, One of the managers there is Tom Slater, who also runs the... uh, very technology-flavoured Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust, so has proved himself a very good um, stock picker when it comes to technology stocks. Okay, I mean, that sounds good, but um, are there any downsides to getting exposure to this area? Well, as I've said, the stocks here are on pretty high valuations, so there is the risk that they will be derailed, um, and in particular by a rise in interest rates. Um, we've obviously had very low interest rates over in recent years and bond yields have been very low as well. And that has pushed investors into equities and into some of these higher risk plays. So if we do get a rise in bond yields with a rise in rates, um, there's a risk that money will flow out of those and um, we'll have a bit of a 
crash in some of the these kind of growthier stocks. Um, same for consumer staples, which have been bid up to very high valuations. So that's the main risk here. Is there a way to get exposure to US equities without incurring the interest rate risk? You could opt instead for a value-focused fund. So I've just been talking about very growth-focused um, funds and themes. But if you go for a value fund, uh, you're buying more kind of out-of-favour, cheaper shares um, on slightly higher yields. So instead of things like consumer staples, for example, you might be holding financials or energy um, and things like that, particularly financials, do better or perform better when interest rates rise because they are able to, to pass that on to customers. So that is one kind of style that you could play instead. What would be an example of a, a fund you could use to get exposure to these? Uh, also, one would be the Dodge & Cox Worldwide US Stock. So it's a contrarian fund and it allocates very heavily to cyclical sectors like financials and it diverges very strongly from the makeup of popular uh, US benchmarks and other funds. Um, and in fact, it has performed very well over the long term, um, but also had some periods of sharp underperformance too. Okay, on that note then, um, other than the periods of sharp underperformance, are there any other downsides to value style investing? Well, the issue with value investing is that it has been out of favour for so long and we've kind of been waiting for this value renaissance to come back for ages. And then everyone did think that might have happened in 2016 um, following the US election. There was a pullback in value and things like financials and energy did really well. But in fact, that's fallen back again this year and growth has outperformed again. So there is a bit of a question mark as to when, um, if at all, this style will come back. Um, also, these stocks are very vulnerable in the US to politics and what um, President Trump is or is not able to push through. Um, I mean, these stocks after the election did rise a lot, for example, energy and, and financials, on the hope that Trump would be able to push through some reflationary spending um, policies and spend on infrastructure in particular. But we haven't really had that come through. And as a result, these stocks will be very buffeted by, by political change. Okay, so I mean, while these funds offer good potential, um, I think like you've just said, they both incur a number of risks. Is there a lower risk way to invest in US equities? Well, you could opt for an equity income fund, um, which protects you slightly in the fact that you have a dividend um, yield, which you're, which you're kind of getting and which might um, give you some protection when the market falls. Uh, the North American Income Trust is an example there, and it yields 3.1%, which is pretty high compared to the S&P 500 yield. Um, and it's done pretty well over the long term. So that's kind of alternative way of doing this, I guess. Okay. Um, Chris, what's your view on US equities? Have they gone too far too fast and will they crash soon? That's the, the second part of the question is the one that everyone keeps asking, I think, at the moment. Uh, as to the first part, some areas of the US market do look quite stretched. So as Kate mentioned, those FANG stocks, so Facebook, Amazon, Netflix and Google, they've run quite far. And I think the question that people are asking is whether or not the earnings can continue to support those quite lofty valuations. I think that if the US economy does turn and things seem to be slowing down, although there's no sign, if you like, of, of rampaging inflation yet – 
or an economic recession, which are the two things that really tend to damage the US economy and therefore the US stock market. At the moment, you could argue that those earnings that we saw, which have been relatively buoyant, have justified uh, an element of those valuations. We're in a different environment than we were to the US tech bubble, Mm. uh, or the tech bubble more generally, the dot-com boom at the the turn of the century. But what I would say at the same time is we've got a number of other uh, outliers, if you like, that we are coping with at the moment, Donald Trump being one of them that you've mentioned, <laughs> yeah. and the fact that he's struggling to force through any of his policies that he actually um, that he actually set out to, uh, to to put through initially. And if a lot of uh, the growth that we've seen in the US market was propelled by the lofty expectations of the public for him to be able to push through some of these policies, then are we moving into complacency territory? Uh, and, and if so, should we not be slightly more cautious and take an element of risk off the table to take into consideration some of those other aspects? that it doesn't seem that many people are talking about at the moment. Okay. Now, you mentioned taking an element of risk off the table. Would that mean totally avoiding US equities? I I wouldn't say to totally avoid it, because I'd I'd agree with parts of what Kate was saying. I think all of this is about asset allocation and and diversification, and it's a term that's used and banded around quite a lot. But it is literally putting your eggs in different baskets. For us, the large cap space, we think, is quite crowded. So we're looking at the micro cap space a lot more, Mm -hmm. because from our perspective, there's an opportunity for some value, and you can get some stocks which are truly exposed to the domestic economy in the US, rather than that hugely overcrowded large cap space where we've seen those lofty valuations I mentioned. Okay. Um, so how could investors play US microcaps? Uh, are, are they funds that, um, or, or you know, would they buy them directly? Well, I think going to a good fund manager where this is concerned, because if you're not careful, you can get exposed to quite mm. speculative stocks yeah. that you don't know a great deal about. And it's quite a specialist space. So for us, one of the funds that we're looking at, we've actually seeded, is a company called THB US Microcap. They are a company we think that will uh, potentially have significant outperformance over the next two to three years. They aren't really looking at those speculative stocks. They're still looking very, very closely at the numbers of these companies. Mm. And they're looking at companies specifically who are between that defensive and cyclical space. So an example of that would be a company that's providing equipment for pharma companies. So pharmaceuticals, big companies, there's always going to be demand for the uh, for the instruments that they're going to be using. Mm. So therefore, they go to the likes of the companies that THB are investing in. So there's a fairly steady income stream where that's concerned. There's also a lot of M&A in that sector, interestingly. So mergers and acquisitions then mean that things are getting bought at a premium and therefore some of the companies that you're holding as a fund manager if they're getting bought at a premium of 30 to 40 percent you get a nice little windfall as a result of that so that's the space that we quite like particularly as we mentioned uh, that the large cap space we see is quite overcrowded and difficult yeah. to find some alpha in yeah and i guess this is probably quite under researched yeah well, yeah. quite. And, and as yeah, I mentioned, yeah. it's difficult to find a manager yeah. that can go out and do it. But it's, a, but it's an area we think if you can get it right, there's an opportunity. Okay. Interesting. Now, what about markets more widely? Um, things are tranquil, but can the general tranquility prevail? Well, if we look at the VIX index, which is the fear index, as everybody calls it, or a measure of volatility, a snapshot of what the world is looking like and how worried people are, it's been low or trending downwards since 2016. Since the beginning of 2017, it's been remarkable remarkably low, looking at historic lows. And the big question, I suppose, that everybody's asking is that, is this going to turn? Is there going to be a spike?
And actually, when we reach these lows, they do t tend to stay at these lows for quite some time. So there's no reason why that should jump up significantly, uh, particularly when we've got things that are conducive to a low volatility environment, like uh, solid macro data. Uh, you've got an, an environment, if you like, uh, with low interest rates and inflation that's not rampaging, but there steadily enough that actually would lend itself to an environment where people feel comfortable to go out and invest. We've also had a breaking correlation. What I mean by that is that since Donald Trump's got in, there's been a rotation, meaning that there have been some stocks which have won. We talked about the uh, tech stocks in particular, some of the financial stocks, and some of the stocks that have done less well. And actually, if there's a breaking correlation and you, you do have an element of winners and losers, that's quite good uh, from a diversification point of view. So there's no reason why that spike should happen imminently, but at the same time as it has been so low for so long, I think, as I mentioned, that we do need to not be complacent and be a little bit aware of the fact that given all of the things that we do have on the table and some of the uncertainties that we do have in the environment at the moment, we should look at those a little bit more closely. Okay, and in view of all this and these uncertainties um, you mentioned, what can investors do to address this? Uh, and a uh, million dollar question. I think I mentioned diversification is really key here and it's making sure that you aren't over allocating to specific areas that are looking very expensive and you are ensuring that when you are placing an investment in a certain area you've You've done absolutely thorough research. Sounds very, very basic, but it's very easy to get caught up on yesterday's news and invest in things that are looking very expensive mm. where valuations are quite high. So I think that you need to be looking at other areas potentially. So for us, uh, where the US is concerned, it might be taking a little bit of risk off the table and looking at other areas in the world where multiples are lower from a valuation mm. point of view. So Europe and the emerging markets in particular. It doesn't mean that you have to take all of your equity risk off the table, but it can mean that you're just a little bit smarter about where you put it. Okay, thank you, Chris. Some really helpful points there. And for more US fund suggestions, see Kate's article in the magazine online um, and see um, next week's issue when Kate will actually be writing about emerging markets. Now, another problem of investing in US equities is that many of the funds focused on this area have failed to beat major indices, such as the S&P 500. As a result, many investors use passive funds such as exchange-traded funds, or ETFs for short, to get their US exposure, which also have the benefit of having very low charges. Kate, ETFs and tracker funds don't aim to beat the market, so how have we been doing against active US equity funds which do try and beat it? Yeah, well, it's, it's no secret that um, active funds have, have really struggled to beat the market in the US for... The S&P 500 now, rather than perhaps some of uh, the areas Chris was talking about, like microcaps. Yeah, exactly. The, the main indices that I'm talking about. Um, and in fact, investors in exchange-traded funds um, have had a much better time. ETFs, um, for example, the iShares Core S&P 500 ETF has returned more um, than the average active fund. Uh, over 10 years. So it goes to show that even though ETFs haven't, you know, aren't designed to beat the market and to beat active funds, in fact, that is what they have been doing over the long term. Okay, so does that mean that the best way for investors to um, get exposure to mainstream US indices like the S&P 500 um, is a passive fund like a tracker on ETF? Well, it's interesting because that, that is what we might have said in recent years. And there's a lot, you know, there are a lot of arguments to say it is a good way. It's very low cost. Um, it's a very low cost way to do it. But I think now there's quite a risk if you're investing in um, a broad US tracker. Because the issue with investing in an ETF is that you are essentially buying the whole market. You're buying the whole benchmark. That's the point of it. So 
with that, you're buying the most overvalued things, which are most at risk of the crash, as well as the kind of cheap, well-valued stocks. So when markets are looking particularly frothy, it is quite a risky time to be to be buying a passive, I think. Okay, and you mentioned that um, some areas are particularly at risk. Um, uh, which which ones are those? Well, I think we'd say those areas that have done really well are probably the areas that are most risky right now. So um, a NASDAQ ETF, you know, if you've been in NASDAQ ETF for the past 10 years, you've taken home amazing returns. But whether that's where you want to be now when those indices might be peaking um, is another matter. Same for small cap, which has been a fantastic area. So, for example, ETFs like Spider Russell 2000, US small cap, or um, Lixel Russell 2000, um, they've done really well. But again, whether you want to be there now may be another matter. Okay, so does that mean investors should only use active funds for US exposure going ahead? For example, some of the ones you highlighted earlier. Well, um, for a start, it's not necessarily an either or. You know, you might want to hold active and passive funds. But also in the ETF market, there are now a huge number um, of ETFs offering you exposure to US equities and doing it in a very wide uh, range of ways. So instead of opting for a market cap weighted ETF, and that would be just an ETF tracking something like the S&P 500, you could opt for an alternatively weighted ETF. So this is where instead of weighting the constituents by market cap, uh, stocks are weighted by something like their value characteristics or quality characteristics. Um, and it might be time to, to have a think about allocating towards one of those. So, for example, um, PowerShares FTSE RAFI US 1000. And that's an ETF which tracks the value-weighted FTSE RAFI US 1000 index, which weights its constituents by fundamental factors, including sales, cash flow, uh, book value and dividends, rather than market cap. It means that you might be able to dodge some of those most overvalued shares. Okay, I mean, that sounds like an absolutely great idea. Um, are there any other US indices and ETFs which take a, a slightly more select approach? Yeah, well, I mean, there are tons. And in fact, there are a lot of value-weighted um, options, which are now pretty low cost. Uh, UBS has one, the UBS MSCI USA value. Um, and in fact, in 2016, that did outperform the S&P 500 and NASDAQ 100 indices. Um, as I said, though, 2016, we did see this brief value rally, which we might not see again this year. Um, so there is that option. Or you could look at uh, a sterling or a GBP hedged option if you want to iron out some currency risk. So there are a lot of different ways of playing this um, with a passive fund. Okay. Um, Chris, what's your opinion on this? Do you think that active or passive funds are the best way to get exposure to US equities? I think it's difficult in the US because it's such a well-covered market where the large cap space is concerned that finding alpha, so someone who's going to be able to outperform the market, is incredibly difficult because even even if you identify an area that you think, ah, I've got a winner here, someone else is going to nip in before you because there are so many institutions, these huge banks, these huge investment companies who are able to identify that and get in beforehand. So your ability to do that is, is vast, you know, it's narrowed quite significantly. Generally speaking, I'd, I'd, I'd agree with Kate again that the uh, passive space, therefore, from a large cap point of view, would make more sense. Because if you struggle to find alpha, why pay for it? So the passive space allows you to access that um, more cheaply and it enables you to have a broad exposure. But the point made about the level of valuations at the moment is a really good one. It, it would mean you are buying the whole market. It would mean you're buying the more expensive things and you'd be underweight the things that had gone down recently. So the things that are less expensive, which might not be overly sensible at the moment. 
Okay. So what about these ETFs then, which track the um, alternative indices? Um, I believe some people call them smart beta ETFs. Are they a better way to get passive US equity exposure? What's interesting about smart beta is that it's almost this grey area between active and passive because with active you've got people who are trying to generate alpha almost based on their subjective opinion or or based on a methodology and with passive traditionally you've looked at that as market weighted so in English it would be if the company is going up and down market valuation wise by their price on a daily basis you're going to have more or less exposed to them. The difficulty is with market weighted is that you end up having a bias to certain factors so you have a bias towards size if things are going up, you've got a bias towards momentum, and you'll have a bias in that, in this case, more recently, where the tech stocks are concerned, towards growth. You might not want a bias towards all of those things because, as I mentioned, if things are going up and you're buying them as they're getting more and more expensive, it means you're getting in, if you like, at the peak, whereas you're underweight the things that haven't been doing as well, where you might want to be overweight them. Smart beta in the middle will have uh, certain factors that it's exposed to, and it's able to almost put a filter over the top and pick out the things that it doesn't like. So it might be that you don't like a size bias, it might be that a specific P ratio over over a certain threshold you don't like either. And it might be that you're exposed specifically to value rather than growth. The only difficulty is, is that it's not always a winner because if you end up having a value-biased smart beta product, meaning that you have factors that are specifically looking at value, that you'll have a period of underperformance as you would have done recently as opposed to a growth. But it just indicates with all of these things, it's all about not just having all of your eggs in one basket looking at a variety of things. But I do think the market weighted passives at the moment, you would be going in at quite a high entry point. Okay, thank you, Chris. Some really useful points. Over the last five years, more than 75 investment trusts have launched, and some of these have been really successful in growing their assets. Emma, what kind of growth have these trusts enjoyed? Yes, that's right, Leonora. Um, some of these trusts have been incredibly uh, good at growing their assets very quickly, sometimes only launching two or three years ago. The top 20 have all grown their assets by at least 134%. Okay, that sounds really impressive. So what do these trusts invest in? Um, Well, most of them are invested in alternative assets such as property, infrastructure and renewable energy. But property is by far and away the most popular, with four out of the top five trusts with the fastest growth in assets investing in this area. Which particular trusts grew their assets the most? The top one was Tritax Big Box REIT, which invests in logistic facilities in the UK, and it launched in 2013. And since then, the trust has increased its assets by 979%, which is a whopping number, um, basically from £200 million at launch to more than £2 billion today. And Empiric's student property came in second. Um, they've also in- increased their assets by a substantial 650% since launch into 2014. OK. Now, um, other than um, an increase in the value of the assets, is there um, other benefits to trusts growing their size? Um, yes, there are. For example, um, the more assets that you have under management, um, that can lead to reduced costs for investors, as well as increasing um, the liquidity of, of owning those shares. Okay. Now, what exactly has been driving the assets of these trusts? Is it just a case of uh, assets becoming more valuable? Um, the main reason really is investors' ongoing demand for income, um, which you know, in the low interest rate environment has, has been substantial. 
And because many of these trusts throw off quite high yields, they've been very popular with investors. And that's allowed them to do lots of secondary issuance, um, to go back to the market and raise money to invest in new assets. Okay, so it's not just the growth of these properties. Okay, interesting. Um, But on that note, what kind of yields do these trusts offer that, you know, are making them so popular for investors? Sure. Well, the top 20, 19, had a yield of at least 4%. Um, with some offering even higher than this. So you can see why they've been so popular with investors. Yeah. Now, I mean, all sounds great, you know, asset growth, uh, popular investors, high yields. Is there anything that isn't so good about this? Yes. Well, understandably, because they have been so much in demand, um, these trusts are generally trading at very high premiums to net asset value. Um, But if things market conditions were to change for example if interest rates were to rise this could negatively affect investors demand for these trusts and possibly also the performance of the underlying assets both of which could cause the premium to fall um and considering if you if you bought at a high premium um if it's to fall you're going to be worse off yeah well that's not so good at all so um Obviously, yeah, things to monitor. Is there anything Mm. else investors should um, keep an eye on? Yeah, there are. Um, I mean, one other issue is that if a trust grows to a substantial size, it can in some cases cause a shift in their investment style or focus. Um, For example, they start to expand into different kind of assets, which might have a different risk profile to um, the assets they originally owned when you first bought them. And that's something else that investors need to be aware of. Okay, thank you, Emma. And you can see her full roundup of the recent launched trusts which have grown their assets the most on the website at www.investorschronicle.co.uk that brings us to the end of today's podcast so it just remains to thank kate bailey and emma ajimangat investors chronicle and chris justum relationship manager at seven investment management you can read more on investing in the u.s the best ETFs for passive US exposure, and the new investment trusts which have experienced the most asset growth in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.